Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us today as we worship and fellowship together. To find out more about Waterbrook, go to www.waterbrook.church. Well, thanks, worship team. Nice to have Roland, brother, up here. Bienvenue. This is uh, first Sunday up there, so it was a nice treat to see him. If you speak French, he would be happy to speak with you. <laughs> I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews. Hebrews, no, Genesis. You just quoted Hebrews. Genesis chapter 6. We've been uh, studying our way through the beginning of Genesis and as we do so, uh, the first 11 chapters, let me just contextualize it once again for you by reminding you and me that we are on mission. And that the mission of God is to take the hope of Christ to the ends of the earth, to all peoples, to all tribes, to all tongues, to all nations. And that as the gospel gets launched out into the world, we have to remember that when the gospel began, we were the ends of the earth. If you think of where the Middle East is and the gospel making its way around the globe, and as we continue to go forward, we need to be reminded from the book of Genesis that God was launching after the time of Moses the people into the promised land. And there were many foes there. There were many dangers that they had to face. In fact, they had balked at going into the promised land the first time around because of the giants in the land. And sometimes for us, um, the call of God on our lives is difficult specifically because it is far easier for us to see the dark than the light. It's far easier for us to see the obstacles than the one who has already triumphed over sin and death and darkness. And so we come to the Word of God to be reminded that there have been extremely dark times. That the dark times in which we live are not exceptional. And the difficulties that you and I face are not unusual. And that there have been specifically difficult times in which God has put His call upon individuals. He's put His name upon a people or a person and put them in and against all the odds that they face because it's God who is determined to work. And that the story fundamentally is the story of God. The mission is fundamentally the mission of God. Friends, it's not our mission and we're trying to get God in on it. It's God's mission that he has purposed from before the foundation and he's calling us into his mission. And the grace and the strength and the purpose begins and is sustained and is end by God. So you can be weak this morning. And you can be weary this morning. And you can be acutely aware of all that is around you that's difficult. I've talked to some of you. This has been a hard week for many of our people. Many of us have had a tough week this week. And as we come into the Word of God and as we come to the Word of God, the hope for us is not to get another lecture about how you're going to make yourself strong, how you're going to pull yourself up, how you're going to press on. This is it. Our God is the God who saves. The plan belongs to God, the power belongs to God, and His purposes cannot fail. And if there's any picture of this, and that's why when Mike prayed, he went to Hebrews chapter 11, a, um, um, Noah's story is a story of someone who was not trusting in himself, but trusted in God. It was his faith in God that made him acceptable before God, and it's our faith in God that God expects of us, faith in Him. And his work. So I'm going to read to you from uh, Genesis chapter 6. Again, can I remind you about the discipline of Bible reading, that something's going on in the reading of the Bible where the Spirit of God owns the Word of God over the hearts of God's people. So as the Bible is being read, listen. And you're listening not just to me read, you're listening to the Spirit of God speak the Word of God into your heart and mind. And so you may have to tail off partway through my reading have a little conversation with Jesus. 
that's okay. As the reading of Scripture has come to you, it's the power of God that speaks into each of us. He takes the bread of the Word and breaks it to you. So just be receptive to the Word of God and hear what He has to say to you. So in chapter 6 of the book of Genesis, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only continually evil. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the earth, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through, uh, for the earth is filled with violence through them, but I will destroy them with earth. Now you make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark. Cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that's on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. And take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. So that's a difficult text, isn't it? There's a lot going on in this passage of Scripture. Um, but one of the things that you and I need to see when we are reading this text of Scripture, is that as bleak and dark and difficult as this time was, and you and I have a hard time even beginning to imagine what Noah was going through, except for when you read the news, except for when you watch what's going on in the world, from everything from the coronavirus to Al-Shabaab in Africa, when you hear constantly of stories of opposition and persecution in China and the Middle East and some of these uh, countries in North Africa, when you watch what goes on in America, stories of murder and rape and violence and incest and Me Too and everything that's going on, and you begin to think, is there anything left that man hasn't done that's evil? You thought that? You ever thought yourself, how is it possible that we as human beings can do that to other human beings? And then you turn on the news and go, oh, there's something more we can do. And you turn off the news because you get sick of it in the pit of your stomach, and you begin to believe and wonder in your heart that this is just going to be progressively worse, and, and what left is there to see, and what kind of scheming. Aren't we now in a cynical age where we believe that behind every government across the world, behind the scenes, there's some sinister thing going on? 
some, some evil plot going on that's kind of uh, shaping the way the world is, and we don't know who to trust and where to go. And so we begin to think and, and come into this text, and you just go, man, there's what's said there is at least some way able to resonate in my life. The danger for all of us is we forget in the middle of this sometimes, we lose heart in the middle of this sometimes, that there is a kingdom that cannot fail. There is one who will build his church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail again. It. There is a strand in the story of Genesis 6 and the story of Noah, which is a God who is resolute. Yes, he's a holy God. Yes, he will bring judgment. But it is this God who is determined to save a people for himself. And it's in this God that we put our hope. So the mission of God gains traction for the people of God, but it also, when we read texts like this, uh, increases in urgency precisely because evil is increasing. And we must know, this is what we have to understand because the question goes through our mind, where is God? We must know that God cannot and will not sit idly by. His nature guarantees that things must be made right. And his promise guarantees that all things will be made right. Do you understand that? In this text of Scripture, we have the merging, not simply of the cumulative evil of men, but of the character and promise of God. That God, because he is God, will be God. God will do what God must do in this world. And God has promised, right back to Eve and Adam after their fall, that he would save and crush the enemy and evil through the seed of the woman. God will save. You need to hear that today? That in this world, the holy God is also the merciful God. The God who has purposed and will purpose to deal with evil will glorify his mercy in salvation. Most of us would not be so patient. Some of us struggle with how God can be so patient, so seemingly uninvolved, so silent when evil screams. And Genesis chapter 6 is a depiction of one of the darkest times in biblical history. And so I have um, put up here the the path we're walking through. So here's your here's your two cent or two dollar theological word if you don't use the word pre-diluvian. There's your pre-diluvian term. Anybody know what pre-diluvian means? Before the flood. That's all it means. I could have wrote that, but I thought you would like a two cent word, you know. So it's the pre-diluvian darkness. Before the dark came, the world had become that's what I want you to understand. The world had become a terribly cruel place our language and our vocabulary sometimes don't captivate it but the story of genesis chapter 6 is that it didn't take long it seems now remember as we studied in the in the last chapter in chapter 5 there were some millenniums here there were many many years of progressive agony and by the time you get to the end of chapter 5, you know, you got Methuselah living 969 years. You get through there, there is a collective groan. We ought not to read in Genesis 5 and think, wow, wouldn't it be nice to live as long as they did? They were groaning. The curse had fallen upon them. Evil had gone rampant. And when we come into Genesis chapter 6, it's almost like there is a collective, magnificent groan of the of the depth of human depravity. It was as dark as you can imagine it getting. So I want to unfold that so you can sense it a little bit, but not to be negative and pessimistic. I want you to sense it so you can hope in God. Because sometimes we lose our perspective when we feel any aspect of this. So one of the first things I want you to see in this text, now it's a little bit of a debated text, so I'm going to just give you the, 
the two sides to what's being said here, and you can take it for what it's worth. But the first thing I called is the rapid spread of idolatry. Look at chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. It said, When man began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, if you've studied any of this, you realize that there's debate about what this text means because of the phrase, the sons of God. And the reason why that is uh, debated is that typically in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, the phrase sons of God refers to angels. And so if you study many theologians, what their position is, is that there are, there's a couple of theories. I think the two main theories are this that the sons of God are either those who descended from Seth. You know, Seth came along after uh, Cain and Abel, after Abel was killed, so the promise of God comes through the line of Seth. So the sons of God are the lines of those who are in the promised line of Seth, through whom the Messiah would eventually come. And though what happens is, and that's why I put idolatry here, that what happens is, is they begin to marry the sons of Men, now some of the theologians say the sons of men are the, from the line of Cain, but what is being actually taught, in, either way, if that's being taught, is what happened regularly in the history of the Bible is that the people who were to be worshipers of God began to marry people who were not worshipers of God. Do you ever see that when you read through your Bible? That regularly the people of God have to be corrected because they're corrupted along the way. Um, For example, in the Old Testament, remember when Israel is out. And remember, Moses is writing this, so he's got some pictures in the back of his mind as he thinks of this. But as uh, as they're out in the wilderness and they get out where? Into, um, they get to Peor and they begin to worship with the Midianites. And they start worshiping Baal. And so you have this kind of almost, uh, it's an a incredibly sexually immoral uniting of themselves with idol worshipers till Phineas comes in and graphically ends it all. It's one of those moments in the history that stands out in the history of Israel where the men who were supposed to be worshipers of God began to join themselves who were worshipers of other gods, and as a result, they're corruption infected their idolatry infected the nation bringing the wrath of God that could be what's going on here remember it happened with Solomon wise Solomon who uh, was supposed to be one of the wisest men uh, uh, um, in the world and then in first Kings chapter 11 we're told these things that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines and then we're told that he had married women from various kingdoms who worshipped other gods, and then this little line, and his wives turned away his heart. So I would say at the very least, what Genesis is teaching in 6 is that the people who were loyal to God began to turn away. The church, if you want to say it, if you want to come to modern language, the people of God became polluted with the people of the world. They began to lust after and desire after and join themselves to those who were not faithful to God. That's what, at the very least, what was going on is the people of God were corrupted. Now, I I will share you the other view because it's not a a minimal view that uh, is held. It's a widely held view that in the Bible, the sons of God are actually angels. And so some of the argument is that this is spiritual warfare. That what had actually happened was the angels who had rejected and fallen came in, saw women. And, you know, you read in the Bible, you can actually mistake angels for people. Happens all the time. And it, we're told in Hebrews, when we studied at Hebrews not too long ago, that you ought to show hospitality one another because you may what? You may welcome angels without knowing it. So it's possible. Now, I'm, I'm going to show you this so it just doesn't seem just weird and wacky to you. But take your Bible and go to the book of Job right before psalms go to job chapter one and uh i'll show you why theologians um 
For example, if you want to study a little bit longer on this, just Google Peter Gentry. He's at Southern Seminary. Peter Gentry on the Nephilim, or who were the sons of God in Genesis 6. Google it. You can get a YouTube video on it. He does a good job. I think he did it for Southern or for the Gospel Coalition or somebody. But in Genesis chapter 1, verse 6, it says, Now there was, or sorry, Genesis, Job, chapter 1, verse 6, Now there was a day when who? The sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came along with them. That's the angels. Satan is a fallen angel. Joining the angels are called the sons of God. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. And again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. So this is in the spiritual realm, not the physical realm. This is in the presence of God, angels coming into the presence of God, Satan amongst them, to present themselves to the Lord. And as they come in, go to uh, stay in Job, because there's only a few times in the Bible this language is used. Go to Job chapter 38, near the end, the story of creation. This is where Job is getting his little corrective lesson from the Lord after he's been questioning his suffering, and uh, the Lord has to bring him to, to uh, kind of dress him down a little bit and put him in his place. So in Job chapter 38, verse 4, God asks him the question, so where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? So when was that? That's creation, right? That's before Adam and Eve and, and Job ever existed. He says, tell me if you have understanding who determined its measurements. Surely you know. If you know everything, you tell me how this whole thing was put together. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what uh, were its bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the what? The sons of God shouted for joy. So that's the language of the Bible in the Old Testament when you speak of the sons of God. So theologians have argued that what happened was there was a spiritual invasion of the world where there was a satanic joining together, and that was a dark time. If you can, we, it's hard for us to get our heads around it, but they took on human form in, in, to invade and infect humanity. Now, I'm going to take you a little step further, so, you know, that's not just speculation. Go to 2 Peter chapter 2 in, in your Bible, because in 2 Peter, Noah, and in the book of Jude, is spoken of the story of Noah, and um, there is, this is where theologians and Bible scholars go to reflect on this, there is this warning about the end times and how the end times will be dark like the days of Noah. So in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 4, what does it say? For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept unto the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved who? Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the earthly. Um, Bible scholars, Greek language scholars, um, say that the way that the language is structured there is not that there is a list of differing events, but that, that it's actually structured in such a way that those things go together. That when God was dealing with Noah, it was the same time when the angels had sinned and God cast them into gloomy darkness, held them in chains, and kept them for judgment in the ancient world. Just to give you a little more on that, turn in your Bible one more time to Jude. I'm not trying to um, just uh, make you think uh, kind of weird and wonderful thoughts, but I want you to see that in the realm of reality all the way through the Bible, there is a thing called spiritual warfare. And when darkness comes, there is evil that comes with it. So in Jude chapter 14, when we talked about Enoch before, it says in Jude 14, sorry, there's only one chapter, in Jude verse 14, it says, it was also about these that Enoch prophesied, right? And it said, um, oops, sorry, I'm in the wrong, I should have went earlier, Jude verse 5, I want to remind you, although you once fully know it, that Jesus who saved 
a people out of the land of Egypt after destroyed those who did not believe and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Okay, and now, so there's other stories under the writing of Enoch um, that is referenced here. That's why you go later on to the story and the reference of Enoch later on. But let me just pull back and say this. I'm not an expert on this. And, the, and there's large disagreement, um, but there are kind of dominant views here. Here's what's being said. We do know the spiritual realm, the angels fell. We do know that they left the place they were supposed to stay in under the service of God and entered into the realm of men. We do know that with Satan. We see it here. What we need to see in all of this is when that happened, God moved. God intervened. God dealt with them in seriousness. So if we go back to Jude chap- or sorry, back to uh, Genesis chapter 6, you and I need to see at the very least this phrase is that the sons of God could be the line of Seth became idolatrous. It could be something far more profound in the heavenly realms that evil began a dark day. And I tell you, even as you look around, you need to know that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but principalities. And you read through your Bible and behind what we see with our eyes is a spiritual darkness. And that should inform our praying and that should enlighten our thinking, but it also should drive us to God on our knees. So there's lots of texts we could go there. But that's what's going on in Genesis 6. There is a spiritual um, devastation. If you go back to Genesis chapter 6, there's this mention of the Nephilim. Verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Again, there's a whole discussion on who the Nephilim are. Some say they are the sons of the angels and the daughters of man. I'm not sure whether or not that's true. I don't think that's what's being said here because the way it's actually being read, I think the way you read it is that when this event happened, which was devastating and evil, it was at the same time the Nephilim were on the earth. And the Nephilim were described in the scriptures are these kind of super powerful people. And when Israel, for example, goes in, or failed to go into the promised land, one of the things that happens to them, they cower back as they think they see Nephilim, or they see these descendants of Anak. And there's just powerful people there. Now, I don't know. My guess is, this is my speculation, my speculation in this text of Scripture is that these characters, these people, are probably much like, if you want to use the language, Vikings. That's my Swedish, Scandinavian, Minnesotan um, (laughs) uh, illustration that I'll use. There was a people on the earth who were terrifying to everybody else. That their presence left people in dread. That there was a pervasive understanding that you did not want to run into these people in a dark alley on a dark night all alone. You didn't want to take your military. It was what intimidated. These kinds of people intimidated the people of Israel when they were supposed to follow God by faith in the promised land. And only um, Joshua and Caleb were willing to trust in God in the face of this. But what we see at this time is that there was a reign of terror and brutality going on. The Nephilim. So it's, it's like us when we hear of Armies and enemies of terrorists, of powerful people that are doing great evil. Isn't that the world we live in? Aren't we living in a world where there is idolatry and corruption and the, and the, and the darkness isn't just coming from the enemy, it's coming from people who profess to be on the same side as us or should be on the same side of us. It's heresy and darkness and idolatry and brutality. And then you get this phrase, if you want to go down into verse uh, 5, where this description is all-encompassing. The universe, What I put is the universality and the pervasiveness of human depravity. 
the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. How often? Continually. Every day, every hour, the worst you could imagine. Every heart deeply infected. The coronavirus, right? We hear the spread. How far will it go? You look at this. When Adam and Eve fell into sin and were told that surely you would die and Satan lied to them and deceived them, Satan knew that sin would spread like an infection of the soul, destroying every heart, thought, affection. Worship is being destroyed. Idolatry is coming in its place. Looking for life outside of God. Finding, trying to find meaning. So every kind of sin form, every kind of behavioral form, every kind of inward, outward uh, um, immorality was spreading. And you, you know, I think a lot of people watch the progressive immorality of the world right now and think, how can this go on? How can it go on? It's exactly what sin does. Sin infects and defects and invades and destroys. That's what it does. And it does so with spiritual warfare and lies going on. And then finally, the accumulation of human cruelty. Go down to verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. Those of you who are younger, I'm not sure. You know, there's a lot of anxiety amongst young people because you were born into a world where this is news all the time. Some of us were born in Mayberry places at Mayberry time, right? Those young people, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, You don't know what Mayberry is, and you don't know what this world is, but some of us grew up where we never thought of um, our kids running down the street and disappearing for the day. Now, if you don't get a text back and your kids don't check in, you panic. We used to play street hockey and war and hide and seek, and we didn't have to be home until the bells of the church said, started ringing at 5 o'clock. We had a church in our town, and the bells rang at 5 every day. When the bells rang at 5 o'clock, we were supposed to go home. (laughs) That was the theory. But you know what? Even if we didn't get home, my parents weren't calling the police. There was no Amber Alert. It was a totally different. I watched my little granddaughter, Ellie, who's in Honduras, got barbed wire over the playgrounds around her house. Everything's gated. Everything's locked. But I get pictures every once in a while inside the compound of the school. Lauren sent one last week where Ellie is um, skipping down a dirt road. And I said, God, let her skip. Get her, let her skip as long as she can skip. Because there's a day coming when we get the news, when we get the tweets, we hear the Amber Alerts, and we think, oh, man, where, how long, how soon? Can't even go to the Mall of America with a little kid, right? And we, we get into that kind of world. We live in that kind of world, and we think, God, where are you? God, what are you going to do? God, help us. Now, I'm thankful that the Bible tells us Sin has been doing that from way back when. You're not, how far are we in the Bible here, folks? So the good news is, A, this is not the good news. The reality is, this isn't the first time it's got this bad. The good news is, God is on the throne and his kingdom cannot fail. But here's where we got to go with this. As you read this text, what you and I need to see is that God is fully engaged with this so this text is not simply about how dark it is it's about how God is responding to the darkness this isn't about Noah's response right this is not man coming up with man's solutions for man's evil problems this is God dealing with man thank God God takes it seriously because some of our questions are where the heck is God. How long, O Lord? Do you not care? Do you not see? Have you no feeling? Genesis 6 
tells you nobody is feeling this more than God. Aren't you glad sometimes that you don't see what God sees? In this text, you should also thank God you don't have to feel what God feels. I just get a little feel of it, and I can hardly cope. It's a little part of what's going on in the world, and I have major soul adjustment just to function with joy and peace in this world. Aren't you like that? All the brokenness and all the evil and all the corruption. So what I want you to see is this is not elevating the darkness. It's elevating God and God's predisposition and all of these things. So I want you to go through this text and see with me, number one, that God, what's going on in Genesis is simply God is patient, but His patience, friends, has limits. God is patient. Bible's clear about that. That's why thousands of years of darkness is unfolding. But you and I need to understand that God is not patient like Grandpa, if Grandpa was patient. Maybe more like Grandma, depending on what Grandma and Grandpa is like. God's not patient like someone who's sitting there just hoping it gets better. God is patient like God is patient. He's patient until he cannot be patient any longer. So Genesis 6 begins with these words. Look at verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide with man or in man forever, for he is flesh, and his death shall be 120 years. Now some people understand this simply to mean that up to the time of Methuselah and all of those in Genesis 5, they lived 900 years, or they lived longer, unless you're Enoch, you got out early, got out of class early. (laughs) But it could be that, and then they lived for 120 years. I think, if you look at the timelines, most likely what's being said here is that God finally said in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, There's 120 years left, and then we're done with this phase. That's how I understand the text and some others. The the timeline. Noah Noah still builds for a long time. This isn't like God gives Noah a command and he builds the ark in a week. This isn't a six-month project. This is the enormous patience of God. I want to show you something of the patience of God in Genesis, just so you can get a little feel for it. Go to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis um, chapter 15 is where God comes to Abraham and tells Abraham that Abraham is going to have as many descendants as are the stars in the sky. He takes him outside on a night when it's clear, and he says, look at the stars. And they didn't have a lot of ambient light from the local city. He took them out where there was darkness, so it's like being in the boundary waters. Well, if, you get to see, if you ever get to see the stars in the boundary waters, it's one of the best things about going to the boundary waters on a clear night. It's just the stars are absolutely stunning. When I was up there last year and we stood out there and I looked up there, I thought, I can't believe I forget this all the time. I can't believe that you can get a moment of absolute staggering smallness against the vastness. He takes Abraham out and he shows him this. And then he makes his covenant with Abraham, puts Abraham to a sleep. But look at what he says in Genesis 15, 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs and will be servants there, and they'll be afflicted for how long? 400 years. You see, friends, God's timing isn't our timing. And uh, he goes on, I will bring judgment on the nations that they serve, and afterward they will come with great possession. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Now here's the reason why. Look at the end of verse 16. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In my uh, reading on this Spurgeon, one of uh, Spurgeon's notes on this, he said, we're amazing. When God makes us a promise or we want something for God, we think we're patient if we wait four days. Right? 
We pray for four days and wonder why God hasn't answered our prayer yet. He said, you imagine God coming and making a promise to Abraham and said, Abraham, guess what? 400 years from now, (laughs) it'll come true. That's what he says, 400 years of captivity. But why doesn't God move? Because God is letting the Amorites' wickedness maximize. And until... It is a point that is consistent with the character of God to act in wrath. Now, God could destroy them in a moment, but God is not an impatient God. Have you ever wondered why God doesn't destroy America? You ever wonder why He doesn't destroy China, Russia, Iran? You understand why? There's only one answer, and there's multiple answers, but one of the key answers is because God is a patient God. He'll never be accused. I'm not giving us, and there's some accusations by scientists and scholars that God will have a lot of things to answer for. God will have nothing to answer for. He has been more than patient with humanity. We are the ones who have something to answer for, why we haven't responded and why we haven't waited. So we have this text, what he's saying, God is incredibly patient, but God says the clock is ticking. Friends, if you haven't got right with God, don't presume upon his patience. God is not obligated to wait around for you. If he is, and he has, thank him. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, do you presume that the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, do you presume on these things, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to what? Yeah repentance. God's been kind by not taking you. The fact that you have breath today in this world with evil that's going on, the only explanation is that God is remarkably patient toward sinners. But don't presume upon his patience because his patience is still just. So God's patience is incredible. I put incredibly patient, but his patience has limited. Friends, the clock is ticking tick 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 and when he comes like a thief in the night no one will be able to justify their non-responsiveness next slide let's go to it curtis god is incredibly pained this is this is one of the things that sometimes people struggle with why isn't god affected the way I'm affected. Does, doesn't God care when he sees what people can do to one another, how evil man is? Doesn't God care? But look at verse 6 in Genesis chapter 6. It's really clear that God is not only patient, but God is deeply grieved. Verse 6, the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. There are not many times in the Bible that we get a clear picture of how man's Human sin grieves God. You and I just have to begin to imagine what that was like. I think Calvary, the cross, Jesus, garden, Gethsemane, groaning. My God, my God, how, why hast thou forsaken me? We begin to get little glimpses. You and I have no idea the depth of God's grief over man's corruption, idolatry, rejection of him. His love, His goodness, His promises. We, we get it in pictures like in Matthew chapter 18 where, God, where you see God does not tolerate, does not feel uh, indifferent to evil. You know where He says, for if any of you causes one of these little ones of mine to stumble, it would be better for you, what? To have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown in the heart of the sea, you don't want to meet God if you're messing with one of God's kids. Because he's slow and patient, he's not impassioned. Our God is a passionate God. He's not the God of the Stoics. He's not just toughing it out. He's not just gritting his teeth. He is feeling it to the core of his being And at some point in time, the Lord, in fact, you know what? 
His pain has consequences. He looks at it and he says, I will deal with this wicked, corrupt, murderous, idolatrous, human cruelty. He feels it when we don't. Don't you cope by not feeling it? Don't you just turn to cheers or some light-hearted, mindless distraction because I don't want to watch CNN and Fox and BBC and BARF 24-7 because you just feel it in the, if you allow yourself to think about the level of evil for a moment. We do that with our kids. We do that with just family members when we can't get away and we think, how could that happen? How would you do that? How dare you? How could you? How could you? There's a little semblance of the nature of God in us. We're made in His image. But He feels it and He never looks away. He doesn't turn on the tube. But at some point in time, he says, there's a day of reckoning coming and I will deal with every sin, every victimization. We'll deal with it all. So you better get it right now. I always have in the back mind the blind boys of Alabama. You better run. you can run on for a long time. You can run on for a long time. You can run on for a long time. But old God Almighty is going to hunt you down. Johnny Cash sings it if you don't like the blind boys. But you can't read that song without realizing that in the black gospel tradition, African-American gospel tra- tradition, they knew God was dealing with all the injustice they were suffering and he would come and make it all right. He would do that. There's a day coming. Now, God is incredibly peaceful. Isn't that amazing? God is incredibly peaceful, but his peace must be established. So if you look in this text in Genesis chapter 6, in verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with what? Violence. That is the breaking point for God in this text. It's when it breaks. Is our world full of violence? It's when evil gets to this level of cruelty that the next verse comes where God speaks and he says, the earth was violent and God saw that it was corrupt and all flesh had corrupt and God said, I have determined, verse 13, to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence. Now you look at God and you say, our God is the Prince of Peace. Christ is the Prince of Peace. Our God comes to make His peace as far as the sea, from sea to shining sea. Absolutely, our God is committed to peace. But you've got to understand, that's why God will not tolerate. He will make peace. He will not tolerate violence. He will not tolerate the schemes and violence of countries and terrorist groups and individuals. God is peacemaking God, but He will make peace. And there will be peace. Now thank God for the gospel because there is a peace not like the world gives peace. Jesus comes to grant peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Flee to Jesus and you will be made peace with God. Having been justified by faith, Romans 5 says, we have peace with God. You can have peace with God today, even if you've been a violent sinner, if you've been evil and corrupt like all of us. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But there will be peace. You get right with God and get peace from Christ, or there will be peace on earth. There will be a silence where you will hear the songs of swallows and sparrows. And he will hammer the swords into plowshares. And there will be war no more. 
Isn't that good? But there is a day of humbling and trembling because those who will not bow the knee will no longer make war or be violent. You see this back. So here's God. He's patient. He's peaceful, right? He's coming. I have a quote from Carl Henry. You got the Carl Henry quote. The Bible throughout, and that's why I'm saying we're starting at the beginning. It's all the way through. The Bible throughout insists that God the Creator holds mankind eternally accountable for every thought, word, and deed. And that every successive generation moves towards a final future in which the God not only of creation but also of redemption and judgment will consummate human history in the light of his divine offer of salvation. Now, if we stopped in Genesis chapter 6, you would just be left with the devastation of God's destruction of the world at this point in time. But something else is happening here. What's happening? God is going to, despite the universal corruption of man, the level of violence and degradation, God is going to save. He's going to save. And so we have this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful line in verse 8 of Genesis chapter 6. I call this the predetermination of grace. God has decided to save humanity, not because humanity deserved it, but because He is a God of grace. That's what He's decided. So He preserves Noah. Look at verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The word hen in the Hebrew, grace, means grace. And the story starts for Noah, not as Noah saving humanity, but God saving humanity through Noah. Remember we saw Noah last week in chapter 5? And Noah's father rejoiced and, and called him comfort. Called him peace, right? Or rest, I should say. He calls him this because finally someone would come to deliver. This is before Noah's born. God's grace was on Noah. Thank God. That in all of this, God had kept someone for Himself through whom humanity would be delivered. There's a scene in the Old Testament, in the writings of Moses, where Moses has gone up to get the Ten Commandments. And you remember what happened when he was up getting the Ten Commandments? How quickly do we go idolatrous? He comes down and he chucks the tablets of stone and breaks them. And says to Aaron, what were you thinking? So they make the golden calves and worship. And he asked that he might see the glory of God. And so he gets back up and he gets the new tablets in Exodus chapter 34, verse 8. And so he has just seen how bad God's people can get. So just a reminder to you as your pastor, and I'm one of you, that my philosophy of ministry is messy church. You're not kidding me if you think you're super spiritual. We are prone to wander, God. I feel it. So the, the illusion that church is made up of a group of people that got their act together is an illusion. Only by grace are we saved through faith. That's, they are us. That's what 1 Corinthians says. This is written so we could learn and run to God for if we are tempted. So here we have this text. And in, in, in Exodus chapter 34, after Moses sees all this, he asks God to see his glory. So God goes by and reveals him. And it says in Exodus 34, verse 8, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if I have now found favor, same word in your sight, Oh, Lord, please go in the midst of us. Why? It's a stiff-necked people. Pardon our iniquity and sin and take us for your inheritance. God, help us. If you have any favor, deliver us from who? When you read Genesis chapter 6, the problem isn't the sons of God whoever they are. The problem isn't the Nephilim, whoever they are. 
the problem isn't Putin, whoever he is. The problem isn't the dictator of China, whoever. The problem isn't whoever out there we can blame. Where's the problem? The problem is in the mirror. The problem is in us. We need grace. Thank God. God showed favor to Noah because God had promised to save a people from their sins. And so we have preservation. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Very next verse, verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah what? Walked with God. We studied that last week with Enoch. Walking with God is turning to God. We saw with Enoch it was repentance. It was listening to God, following God, responding to God, walking in the Spirit, hearing God. What's going on here is Noah's fruit. Noah was all these things because God helped him, not because Noah was different in himself and all these things. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah had grace. Noah walked in dependence. My dear friends, unless the Lord builds the house, our labor is in vain. Or to go to Psalm 121, which we memorized Right? What was this week's verse? Verse 7 and 8. The Lord will keep you from all evil. The Lord will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and how long? Forevermore. Oh, thank God for the Lord. God's faithfulness In this text, God says to Noah, I will make a covenant with you. Now get your family in the ark. You and your household. I will make a covenant with you. Do you understand that Genesis 6 stands out in the Bible prophetically for us pointing to Jesus Christ in the gospel? So I'm going to do this quickly just to get you. You can read more, but the prophecy of Noah. You go to Matthew chapter 24, verse 36 to 44, and Jesus says in the last days, it's going to get really dark. In fact, thank God God's merciful because for the sake of the elect, He'll shorten the days because the evil will be so bad, the violence will be so great, it'll be like it has never been seen on earth. And it'll be against the church of God. And you'll hear in China, they're being tortured. And you'll hear in in North Africa, they're being put to death. And you'll hear in North Korea, they're being starved out. You'll be hearing story after story. And it'll be like a machine chugging and churning and chopping the children of God. And you'll be going, how long? And God says, hold on, just a little longer. Till every tribe and tongue and nation have heard of Jesus. And so it says in the end of that section, and Jesus says in Matthew 24, as in the days of who? Noah, so it shall be for you. And then you go to 1 Peter chapter 3. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 to 22, Jesus is pointed to by Peter as the fulfillment of Noah. That there is an ark for us. There is a Savior for us. There is a new covenant. And that covenant that God made with Noah that saved his children, that covenant God made with Jesus to save all who are in him. And so what he says in 1 Peter chapter 3, that what God has done in Noah, he has now permanently done in Jesus Christ. And in baptism, when you get baptized by faith in Christ, You're like Noah's family getting in the ark and going through the flood. You die with Christ and are made alive. Christ is delivering you. So what should you do today? Yeah, there is one man in Genesis 6 through whom God made his covenant, Noah. There is one man for all eternity that Noah was pointing to that is the only shelter against the day under which God's wrath is coming. 
where he will make peace and his patience will end and then he'll make all things new. Who is that? Right, that's what he said. Christ Jesus has made atonement for our sins. Have you fled to Jesus? There's no, more, there's no other name. There's no other place. There's no other ark. I want you to go to 2 Peter. I'm going to read to you 2 Peter this morning because this shows us the end times finally and a call for us to be determined to get ready. And it points to Noah and the flood and then points to the second coming of Christ. And it tells us, don't be sleeping, but be eagerly expecting and waiting. So I'm just going to ask you this question this week. Did you plead with God to bring the second coming this week? When you see and you groan, do you say, God, make all things new? Come, Lord Jesus, come. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 3. This is the second letter I'm writing to you. In both of them, I had one goal. That was to stir you up, stir up your sincere mind by way of remi reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets, the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, scoffers will come in the last day scoffing following their sinful desires. Does that sound like Genesis 6? Mocking, scoffing. They will say, oh, where's this second coming you're talking about? Ever since the fathers went asleep, all things are continuing. It's the same old, same old. Verse 5, for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed a long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and God used those means. By those means, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. What's he talking about there? When did that happen? Genesis 6, 7, 8 with Noah. Now he says in verse 7, but by the same word. That's what Genesis talks about. All God has to say is, it's over. The heavens and the earth that now exist are being stored up not for water but fire. Being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Do not overlook this fact, friends, beloved, that the, with the Lord one day is like what? A thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowest, but God is what? He's patient toward who? You. I want you to think about that. That is God's word to you. God is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. Is that our God? But that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works and all, that's done will, uh, and all that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt away as they burned. But according to his promise, we are waiting for what? A new heaven and a new earth where there'll be no more violence. There'll be no more wickedness. There'll be no more news. Our problem isn't fake news. Our problem is real news. And the only answer to it is good news. And this is the good news. He will make all things new. I can't wait for that day. Can you wait for that day? Can you imagine? You, you, you see, a lot of newspapers are folding right now because of online technology. All the time you're hearing, no more newspaper companies, you know, they're all folding. My dear friends, won't it be good when news sales is all about, I can't wait to tell you the good news in China today. All these fabulous things are happening. 
There is no fake news. There is no bad news. There's no death. There's no obituary section anymore. There's no hospital wards. There's no calls, no tweets, no texts, except for this. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He has made all things new. He has wiped away every tear, taken away every sorrow. He has taken Satan, sin, and death and thrown it into the pit and never ever, ever again. So the point of Genesis 6 this morning is this. God has been patient. Come to God. The ark is Jesus. Come to Jesus. A day of righteousness is coming. Do not lose heart. Do not lose hope. He will make all things new. And on that day, from sea to sea, it'll all be righteousness. Isn't that good news? Aren't you glad? Those of you weeping, aren't you glad? Those of you who came in here this morning struggling, aren't you glad? He'll make it all new. He'll deal with it. It's coming. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. And so, dear God, in the depth of our sorrow, our sin, and our struggle, thank you that you are the kind, patient, covenant-making God who gives grace. Thank you, dear God, that you do not will, uh, wish that any would perish, but that all would repent and come to salvation. The only explanation that you have not made it new is that you're willing that sinners might be saved from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So I plead with you in the name of Jesus today that if there's one person here today, one soul today, dear God, that isn't ready for Jesus, that they would run to him now. That they would come into the ark of his his forgiving grace when he died on the cross for our sins and hide themselves in the Savior. For all who are in Christ have life. So call them. Call them, dear God. Let them lay aside all fear, anxiety, any doubt, any, any, any guilt, any shame. Let them come to the one who forgives and accepts. You do not wish that any here today would perish, but all would come to Christ. So save, dear God, we pray. We praise you, we rejoice in you, we look forward to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask uh, the ushers to come take the offering, ask you to stand. Let's worship the Lord in light of the hope of the gospel. Let me pray for you. So I ask, Father, that every person here today would know that. Pray, Heavenly Father, that there would be peace deep in every heart. The world is not as it ought to be, but it will be made new. Our lives are not what they ought to be, but Jesus has saved us from our sins. So give grace to live for you. Give us peace as we live in this world. Give us confidence to take the hope of Jesus while there is yet hope. And dear God, send your son quickly to make it all better, all well, all new. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Have a great day today in the Lord. God bless you as you go. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to find out more about Waterbrook Christian Church located in Victoria, Minnesota, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed day.